Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 352 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world's of AEW and NXT for AEW World's End is approaching quickly. NXT, of course, coming out of deadline with their New Year's Evil TV special not that far away. So we have an absolute ton to discuss on today's show. As we get into it, let me quickly give you all a reminder about the upcoming schedule here for getting over. We're doing three episode weeks in back-to-back weeks to end 2023. This week, you already have your WWE episode waiting for your ear holes if you have not heard it yet. Of course, today we're talking AEW and NXT. We're going to be back Friday night after SmackDown goes off the air for the final WWE episode of 2023. We'll talk about everything that happens on SmackDown. We will also give you a preview of WWE Day 1, which will be the special edition of Monday Night Raw on January 1st. There is not going to be a live or even taped Raw next week. It is expected to be a best of 2023 type of show. Therefore, we're not going to do the WWE episode on Tuesday. Instead, we're going to give you our 2023 year in review. We're going to break down the entire last 12 months in professional wrestling. We did it last year. You guys absolutely loved it. So we are going to do it again because as crazy as 2022 seemed, 2023 may have been even wilder. So Tuesday will be the year in review. Thursday, we'll come back with your AEW World's End Ultimate Preview. We'll also talk about NXT in that episode, and we'll wrap up the year next Saturday with your AEW World's End Instant Analysis. Six episodes, two weeks. You get it all right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Since I spent so much time on that, let's run through the reminders pretty quick. First, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about the five. So please leave the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you leave a written review on Apple, we'll read it right here on the show. It's the holiday season. Please give us the gift of your five stars. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and all of that good stuff, but we need your nominations for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. the Meaties. That is being done all week. We're listing every single award category. We want your additional nominations beyond what Vintage Chris Vanini and I have already done, and voting for the meaties will begin soon. So again, follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too. $5 a month, 50 for the entire year. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, exclusive news posts. We have another one coming this Friday. And you support the show financially, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I'll also note, just before we get into the show, we told you on Tuesday's episode that Getting Over has been nominated for Best Wrestling Podcast in the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards. It's a huge honor for us. We tweeted it out. We gave you a link to vote. Unfortunately, their voting system was down. So for like two days, all of you visited the website and probably didn't have a chance to enter your votes. They have finally fixed the voting system. 
please visit the link in our profile, or I should say in our Twitter feed. Uh, We will go ahead and tweet it out probably again right after this show gets published on Thursday. Make sure you vote for Getting Over as Best Wrestling Podcast of 2023. This is a complete fan-based award system, so all of your votes will directly help us potentially win. And as I noted, it goes by email, and there's some interesting things you can do with emails on the internet. So perhaps, you know, load up that ballot box for your favorite wrestling podcast. With all of that out of the way, let's fully get into today's show. We're going to talk NXT and AEW. Of course, we're going to kick things off with NXT, but we will have timestamps in the episode description. So if for some reason you need to pause the show at some point, or you only want to listen to AEW or NXT, you can jump around. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. I will also note, I did not get a chance to watch ROH Final Battle. Sometimes I will cherry pick individual matches for Ring of Honor or New Japan or whatever else and also cover them on this episode. I will do my best to watch. There's two matches in particular that I want to see. I'll do my best to be able to discuss those next week here on the show, but I do have a topic coming out of Final Battle that needs to be discussed. And we'll do that between NXT and AEW. But we are going to kick off with NXT. Let's go right to the big storyline. Trick Williams and Carmelo Hayes commiserated backstage with Melo apologizing for the inadvertent title shot last week. Trick said accidents happen, and Melo admitted he didn't see who attacked him. But the only person who had ever hit him that hard before was Ilya Dragunov, so he made the assumption. Then he suggested making the New Year's Evil title match a triple threat to ensure Ilya doesn't retain. Williams pointed out that Hayes was unsure who attacked, and since he won the Iron Survivor Challenge, he deserves his own title shot. Melo agreed. He said it didn't really matter which of them won the title as long as they had it. Trick disagreed, saying it absolutely matters who wins the title because he had Melo's back during all of his title reigns, and it was now Trick's time. Then he asked Melo to help him train and get his back. Hayes agreed, and for once, after this segment, there didn't really seem to be any direct animosity. There have been plenty of these between Trick and Mello over the last few months. This was easily the most natural of all of them. And it also made the most sense from like a reality standpoint in terms of how two guys would discuss the situation and ultimately come to a resolution. Obviously, we as viewers should still be believing that Mello is looking out for his own best interests. And that was indicated by trying to get into the triple threat. But we were given less reason to think he would turn on Trick here as opposed to prior interactions. We'll keep going though. Dragunov hit the ring in the next segment, saying he didn't want to be the third wheel in the trick mellow drama, and he proved over the last year that he'll use himself as a weapon and do whatever is necessary to retain the NXT title. Ridge Holland, who was wearing all black, interrupted from out of the crowd with no music, saying he needs to rewrite his story, figure himself out, and find redemption. He announced his return to NXT, saying his career has been marred by unfortunate errors, including accidents and injuries to himself and others, and he needs to prove that he belongs in the main event. So Holland said he wasn't asking for a title match in the moment, but he'd run through the locker room to get a chance and then find his redemption. Dragunov said he had no patience for that and would let Ridge figure out where he stands when they fight in the main event. Then they shook hands and stared each other down. So I give credit to Ridge for being more than capable on the mic. It's not the most exciting segment that we've seen, but... Holland returning to NXT makes sense because he does have potential beyond just being a heavy in the brawling brutes. And the way they blurred the lines here was well done. We didn't exactly get any meat on the bone 
when it came to that, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But the blurring of the lines here made sense. Ridge coming back made sense, and he handled himself quite well. I wish he had probably gotten an entrance and didn't just come out of the crowd wearing all black. But as you'll find out when we get to the match, there's a reason why they didn't play his entrance twice. Uh, Trick then confronted Ilya backstage. He was angry because he wanted to fight him at New Year's Evil, and he didn't want it to be a triple threat with Holland. Dragunov reminded that the champion dictates what the challenger does, and he is the one who decided to give Holland an opportunity. It got contentious from there. Later, Trick was angry that Ridge could end up making it a triple threat, and Mello sarcastically and correctly pointed out that doing a triple threat and getting the advantage in that by having a partner was a good idea, and someone suggested it earlier, of course, referring to himself. Williams was in his own zone, so he just said, he needs to prove he can take the title off Dragunov. That obviously irked Hayes, given that he failed at doing that himself. Couple sensible backstage segments. They moved the storyline forward. Perhaps this plays into the idea that Mello did not initially attack Trick, but turns on him anyway, just because of actions that have been taken ever since. So let's go to what was the main event. Dragunov against Holland in a non-title match. Ridge came out to the entire Brawling Brutes entrance. Like pictures of Butch were still in the video. It seems like they rushed this because he was supposed to be divorced from them in storyline. He's there on his own. So why is he coming out to the theme? Why is he coming out to the same Titantron? Booker T on commentary suggested the injuries Holland caused were purposeful because that's the game. Ridge hesitated before doing 10 beats with Ilya capitalizing and then countering a vertical suplex into a DDT. Then he countered an Alabama slam and hit an H-bomb with no cover. Dragunov had his legs wrapped around Holland only for Ridge to counter with a nasty-looking DDT that Vic Joseph called a brain buster when it looked nothing like that. But I guess that was the point. It wasn't a brain buster. It wasn't a DDT. And it was controversial. Ilya immediately sold that move in a fencing position, like when you have a concussion or a cervical issue or something like that. The referee waved Ridge off and five other officials stormed the ring. Holland collapsed in the corner with his head in his hands as Dragunov was braced and boarded, well, just boarded. They didn't exactly brace his neck until after, which just looked immensely incorrect. Holland did a like, why is it always me bit in the corner as Dragunov got wheeled off with the crowd completely silent prior to clapping for him as you would with an injured player going off the field as if it was not already completely apparent that this was a work just based on the way the referees reacted, the way that real medical trainers weren't there. The cameras stayed on him you know, so on and so forth. As if that wasn't enough, they literally took the NXT championship and put it on top of Dragunov on his waist as they wheeled him off on the stretcher. Now, this is understandably a controversial angle. And I think you all know that I personally hate the idea of using concussions or neck injuries in storyline. I absolutely detest it when it's someone who has a history of such injuries, like a Brian Danielson or an Adam Copeland. I have less problem with it when it's a situation like Randy Orton punt kicking someone and knocking them out where you know it's completely kayfabe and and that's it. But this kind of falls into the line of Danielson and Copeland because even though Holland didn't have this kind of injury, he actually hurt Big E and at least cost him two years, if not his entire career. It was, you know, life-threatening in the moment, you could say. Now, we obviously hope Big E comes back as soon as possible, but who knows if that will ever actually happen. I dislike this for both of them, Big E more than Holland, but 
wrestling fans are dumb and Ridge is probably going to take a lot of abuse from this online, even though it's completely kayfabe. Plus, I'm not sure that this needed to happen for NXT to reach its goal of telling Holland's story. He already started telling that story in the earlier promo, and they easily could have just shown footage of Ridge blowing out like his knee and whatever it was, knee quad, like his entire lower body exploded on that catch out of the ring in NXT. And they could have mentioned the big E moment and showed it in a video package. They have shown it numerous times before. Not that I suggest showing it. I'm just saying they could have, or they could have alluded to it or like shown the toss, but not the effect of it, him laying on, uh, landing on his head. Maybe there's some reasoning to it where they needed to do this storyline at this time and they're going to have Dragunov relinquish the title and move up to the main roster. But I need to know what that missing piece is before I give a final judgment. Because if Ilya is simply like cleared in a couple weeks and the trick feud continues as scheduled, then this was truly not worth doing. And it's not, you know, in a silo either. Let's be clear. Like NXT already used Roxanne Perez's personal emotional issues or mental health issues, I should say, not emotional issues. That's incorrect. Her um, her mental health issues, they used that in a storyline. They used Von Wagner's real life, you know, uh, injuries and, and issues with his head as part of his storyline. And so they're, now they're doing it with Ridge Holland, taking something that happened in reality and applying it to a kayfabe character. It's just the way in which they did it needs to make sense. And I'm not sure that it does. Not only does it need to make sense, it needs to be worthwhile. And I'm not sure that it will be. So this is one of those situations where we like have to pause and kind of say, on the surface, not a fan, but let's see how it plays out because let's be candid. This was a couple of years ago. WWE doesn't have our trust to do an angle like this. These days, with Triple H and Shawn Michaels, not only do they have our trust that most of the time they're going to execute it, but they've already executed similar type of storylines, not with this exactly, but in NXT under Shawn Michaels. And certainly they're not going to attempt to go and do something that will be controversial and get people upset and make the company look bad. So I'm willing to see what transpires next week. I'm willing to see how everything looks when we get to New Year's Evil. But on the surface, don't love it. I will give credit for one thing, though. Dragunov, the acting and the selling of this, I mean, expert level. You like would not have known that it wasn't real, the way he sold this. But again, many in the crowd were fooled, even though, as far as I saw it, NXT went to some significant lengths to let them know it was kayfabe. Again, referees coming out first instead of trainers, not fully bracing his neck before turning him over, even though that was ridiculous. It wasn't as bad as the um, the oxygen uh, miscue that AEW had, but it was, I mean, not putting someone in the neck brace properly is definitely a flaw. Uh, but beyond those two things, and then putting the title around his waist and keeping the cameras on them the entire time, not ending the show. I mean, it just became very obvious that it was a work. And I'm sorry for anyone who got fooled, but you shouldn't have been. It's the best way I can put it. Uh, let's go to the North American Championship uh, Dragon Lee Open Challenge we had. Charlie Dempsey was set to take the match on behalf of the No Quarter Catch crew when suddenly Gallus entered with Joe Coffey saying he didn't hear the bell and he demanded that Dragon pick him as challenger. So like a dumb babyface, Dragon decided on a triple threat. 
The referees quickly ejected Gallus, or referee, singular. Uh, the trio combined for a German suplex and toss overhead suplex in a single move. Dragon ate a pop-up uppercut and Glasgow send-off, but came back with a hanging double stomp on him and a tope suicida on Dempsey. With all three down outside, Joe Gacy briefly and creepily crawled out from under the ring. Then he pulled coffee under the ring, and Dempsey hit Dragon with a fallaway slam bridge for a near fall. Really sick move. Dragon flipped out of a move and then hit Destino for the win. No quarter attacked after the bell, only for Joaquin Wilde and Cruz del Toro to randomly make the save. This was another great featured spot for Lee. Like, it's interesting that Gacy seems to be on the face side with this gimmick, but I don't really have much else to say. It was a quality match, interesting element with Gacy, and we'll see what happens. I'm pretty sure no quarter is going to get a couple more opportunities to challenge for this title, and that's fine. Match was good, not great. 3.25 stars, something like that. You guys know I don't grade every single match when we do TV, but occasionally it's worth mentioning. It was the best match on the show. That's pretty much the best thing I can say about it. Uh, Hank and Tank fought Gallus. Interesting was these guys not standing in the traditional babyface and heel corners. Tank made an illegal tag that the ref noticed, which led to a blindside kick by Mark Coffey and the win. This actually disappointed a little bit because in the ring, I mean, straight up, we had four big men slapping meat equals excitement. So it should have been really exciting, but it was short. No one really got over coming out of it. I figured we'd at least have some hard hitting action. Gacy ended up being shown watching in the crowd from the Chase U student section. So again, another element. Seems like he's tormenting Gallus a little bit. Three on one. That's a little weird. We'll see where it goes. We got an extended backstory for Lyra Valkyria and Blair Davenport in a video package that showed their extensive travels on their way to the United States and how their careers have headed in completely different paths with them standing as polar opposites entering New Year's Evil. This was extremely well done, provided a lot of context for the two women who have received screen time, but not really had their backgrounds delved into that much. I mean, we know Lyra's Irish, but what else do we actually know about her? This told us a lot. It accomplished plenty. Uh, Nikita Lyons then approached Lyra backstage, saying that she would take care of Tatum Paxley, because she was a problem for her, but she really wanted both Davenport and the NXT women's title sooner than later. It was probably Nikita's best speaking segment in her entire NXT tenure. So we had Lions against Paxley, solid back and forth early. Lions at two kicks, three gut punches, and a haymaker before doing a really strange springboard seated move, like a completely botched toss after that. And then a roundhouse kick, plus her jumping split cover for the win. Paxley's nose was completely busted open. I'm not sure if Lyons has improved at all, but they might have just put her right back in the ring immediately so she could shake off the rust without her actually training and doing it. She has a long way to go. You can see the vast difference between her skill and Lash Legend's skill at this time. They were previously at the exact same point in their development, and then Lyons got injured. Lash continued to train and get better because she was healthy, and Nikita has been sidelined. Legend, when competed in the Iron Survivor Challenge, had the great moment with Otis in the mixed tag team match. And she's on the upswing. I mean, her arrow is pointing all the way up. Lions did not look improved whatsoever in this match. And again, there's some reasons for it, her being sidelined, but it didn't look like she's done any training since coming back from injury. It was night and day as far as I was concerned between them. Fallon Henley fought Tiffany Stratton. This opened the show. Stratton caught Henley in the ring apron early. They soon exchanged pinning combinations with Fallon, catching Tiffany for the win in just a couple of minutes. Stratton immediately attacked and dragged Henley by the hair, covering her with a dirty mop. 
and then dumping a ton of garbage onto her in the backstage area. Real smart move by NXT, throwing a bunch of coffee grounds in that garbage, because obviously it's not real garbage. I mean, it is, I guess, technically, but it's like a banana peel. It's like packaging. You know, it's nothing that's actually gross. But by using the coffee grounds, when it got dumped on her, it looked, she looked all dirty coming out of it. I just thought that was such a smart move. Henley looked nasty, but this was kind of rough altogether, given they got zero time to even begin simmering, let alone cooking. And the post-match was somewhat low energy. NXT does this a lot. When they want to just like do a match knowing there's going to be a rematch with bigger stakes on a bigger show, they just give you like four minutes with a quick finish, but you're left wanting more. That's not what Triple H does on the main roster. He doesn't give you a 20-minute banger first, but he'll give you like 10, 12 minutes, get people really amped up for it, and then it'll end in a certain way where you're like, oh, I want to see more of that. There wasn't anything here with Henley and Stratton that I wanted to see more of. And don't forget, last week and coming out of deadline, I was saying, man, Stratton and Henley, I really hope they continue this feud. So I should have been coming out of this match saying, wow, I really want to see this match. And instead, I'm just like, eh, they didn't really do anything to move this along other than Henley getting garbage dumped on her. So Fallon later ranted about Tiffany to Briggs and Jensen. Stratton cut a promo later into the camera, basically saying she's better in every way and Fallon could never be like her and will always be trash no matter how hard she tries. Stratton then challenged for New Year's Evil, stipulating that Henley becomes her servant if she loses. And like, I guess that works, but it seems super repetitive the LA Knight Cameron Grimes story was not that long ago, though I don't particularly remember a stipulation like this involving women previously, maybe. At some point during the Attitude Era, there was an equivalent to this. So it's fresh in that regard, but it also feels a little bit stale. And it also feels like it's coming out of nowhere. I mean, they're totally different people, and that's why it's similar to Grimes and Knight. But at the same time, I don't know that their feud is so contentious that you need to go straight to this as a stipulation. Eddie Thorpe said 2023 was trial by fire for him in NXT, but he was excited to finally end his feud with Dijak after they both cost the other one opportunities. Thorpe challenged for an NXT underground match, saying clearly the ropes cannot contain them. Dijak later reminded that he hospitalized Thorpe in front of his family and no one will be able to save him in underground, promising to retire him on the last NXT of 2023. This is exactly what I wanted between these two. Perfect match for their feud coming out of what happened last week and a perfect match to end what has been somewhat of a blood feud between the two guys. That's gonna be a banger. The first NXT Underground was a banger. This one should be as well. Thea Hale and JC Jane fought Kiana James and Izzy Dame. Thea was hysterical trying to do JC's like sexy entrance moves, but she looked completely uncoordinated. Hale hit a great fisherman suplex, rolling leg drop, and springing senton on James, but Dame tagged in blind, making a Kimura lock submission on James irrelevant. Uh, Dame then caught Hale with a boot to the face for the win. Riley Osborne was in the Chase U section cheering for Thea throughout. He's her crush. Uh, Hale was actually pretty impressive when she went on her run. Her continuous improvement is commendable. I'm curious to see how quickly she can continue leveling up, sponsored by Shazam Fury of the Gods, and actually become a legitimate like contender in the NXT women's division. She's nowhere near like where Roxanne Perez is yet, but she's super young. I think Thea's 19 now. So in like one more year when she's 20, is she going to be someone who's actually capable of not just challenging for the NXT women's championship, but 
being a believable potential champion. I mean, it's not that far off right now. Roxanne Perez backstage was furious over the result of that match, promising herself that she'd get her revenge. Ariana Grace tried to do her beauty queen deal saying, it's not about wins and losses, but how you play the game. So Roxy just slapped her across the face and Ariana screamed, my face, am I still pretty? Which was hysterical. You can tell she's Santino Morella's daughter because she 100% has the comedy chops and comedic timing locked down. This is a really good in-between feud for both of them. Perez can get an easy win. Grace can work with an experienced talent. Cora Jade stormed into the women's locker room later talking her own shit and reclaiming her locker, throwing Carmen Petrovic's nameplate and property on the floor. Gigi Dolan watched in disgust and Carmen quickly came in pissed off. Gigi told her, there's only one way to deal with Cora. As with Roxy, really smart in-between feud, both for Jade, who's coming back from a long layoff, needs a win, and then Petrovic being able to work with a more veteran, but still young competitor. So same thing with Roxy and Ariana, Cora and Carmen, makes total sense. Andre Chase was rolling the dice with out the mud, collar popped, pounding his chest as Duke Hudson had his hoodie up, (laughs) trying to get him to quit while he was ahead. OTM convinced Chase to do one more roll, but Chase turned it into a double or nothing proposition out of a tag team match next week. OTM wanted a title match if they won, and Chase was confident he could get D'Angelo family to agree. Then Adriana Rizzo came up because she somehow knew where they were playing dice. Uh, She called Tony D'Angelo and confirmed he was in. Chase was excited to pay their debt in full. Then he dropped the dice and they rolled into a seven, which of course is not what you want. There was nowhere near enough money in Chase's hands and on the floor where doubling it would have made up for a six-figure debt. I mean, that aspect of it did not make any sense, nor would it have made sense for OTM to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in their gimmick. I mean, unless you're saying they're drug dealers, in which case, why are they even wrestling, right? How else would those guys coming from the projects who their whole gimmick is we came from nothing, we have nothing, we're trying to make careers. How would they have hundreds of thousands of dollars that could pay down this debt? These are just clear logic flaws. I did enjoy this segment for its campiness and for Trace trying to be hard, but you need some logic in there as well. Metaphor was celebrating the holidays backstage. Noam Dar said he's a man of charity, especially during the holidays. So he'll grant Josh Briggs a match for the Heritage Cup. He also mentioned Festivus. What's odd is Noam is literally Israeli. And so I believe he's Jewish. And he mentioned like two holidays that were not his own. He might as well have thrown Kwanzaa in there, but there was no mention of Hanukkah. I'm probably one of the few people who noticed that, but it stuck out to me. Jensen later told Briggs that he and Henley would have his back during the Heritage Cup match to counteract metaphor, but Briggs declined, saying he can't explain why, but he needs to ride solo. Jensen was obviously disappointed, and this came off immensely dumb to me because, number one, you're supposed to have a second for the Heritage Cup matches, and he knows he's going to be going one on four against an entire faction. So why would you put yourself at a disadvantage by not bringing the two people that you trust with you for quote-unquote reasons? Again, logic flaw, don't really like that. I do hope these guys split up. I just think Briggs' ceiling is huge, and I, I don't believe Jensen has one. I just don't. Let's move to the NXT breakout tournament. Two matches there. Dion Lennox against Lexus King. Before the match, King cut a walking promo about already being a breakout star and this being his time. He also tried to walk out with the contract at some point during the match. King ran Lennox into the ring post and hit a cross-armed swinging neckbreaker called the Coronation for the win. Lennox barely got to show anything. That was disappointing. Trey Bearhill then ran out with a chair, 
to get even with King for taking him out of the tournament, but Lexus dipped out. This made no sense. Bearhill was removed from the event because he couldn't compete after the match. Yet, he looked 100% fine the same night King replaced him in what would have been his first match. So why would they not have waited and seen if this guy could get cleared, which he obviously was, and rather they just put King in there? Now, William Regal would tell you the explanation is it wouldn't be fair to all the competitors who get to do research on their opponents and prepare for the match, and therefore you have to make that decision a whole week in advance. I don't buy that. I think it was a logic mistake and an error. Block at zero! Tavian Heights fought Luca Crustofino in the other match. The heel hit a couple neck breakers, which I'm not sure whether it's purposeful, but as a injury attorney gimmick, it would be pretty fun if he concentrated on the neck in his matches, like to the degree that Roderick Strong does with the back. Heights impressed with his energy and a few tosses. He also had a really, a clutch leg belly-to-belly suplex and then a second spinning version of that move for the win. Loved those moves. The dude absolutely flashed. Heights and Keanu Carver, for me, are the standouts from the quarterfinals. Carver did not advance. This men's event is better than the women's equivalent, but neither of them is anywhere near as good as prior breakout tournaments were. Both have been massively disappointed as far as I'm concerned. So that was NXT this week. As you can tell, a little bit of frustration from my part with some logic gaps, but otherwise an entertaining episode did not have the high quality wrestling that we normally get, but it was a taped show. Obviously the holidays were coming up. Next week is being built up as a pretty big episode. And then of course, two weeks out is New Year's Evil and the match card for that is already fantastic and surely gonna grow over the next episode or so. So I'm into it. NXT still working pretty well. Now, before we fully get into AEW this week, as I mentioned earlier, I tried but failed to watch select matches from ROH Final Battle over the weekend. I do plan to find time for the special six-man tag match for Jay Briscoe and the Athena-Billy Starks match, just so we can discuss them briefly next week. But what made news coming out of the show were comments made by Tony Khan in a post-show press conference. And look, We've ranted on Tony a bunch in 2023. All of them deserved. So I'm not going to do that here. But I do want to respond to some of what he said just on a purely factual basis. Because frankly, it it was infuriating to a degree. Here are his comments from the post-show press conference at ROH Final Battle. To be AEW is to be under constant attack. You do a great show, and the next day somebody's saying something negative. You do five great shows in a row. Somebody says something negative. You break the ticket record for the most tickets ever sold for any wrestling show in the history of the world, and somebody has something bad to say about it. I just, at this point, I don't worry about it. We just need to go out and do great shows week after week like we did. This right here is the definition of having a persecution complex. And I could detail like years of comments to show you the hypocrisy in that statement. But even if we just stick with 2023, like he called Triple H and Shawn Michaels bald assholes for competing with him. He talked about ending rating streaks for John Cena and The Undertaker. He made those insensitive comments about Vince McMahon's alleged sexual assault. And who cares about Vince, but it's the victim that we talk about there. The literal foundation of AEW is criticism of WWE saying it's no longer good. We're the alternative. And we're gonna be so much better, not just for you, the fans, but to the wrestlers themselves and to the industry. And then beyond like adoring CM Punk as a wrestler, Tony let Punk say 
whatever the hell he wanted about WWE. And those were constant criticisms because Punk was not praising them when he was a member of AEW's roster. And he constantly allows any member of his roster to take similar shots. Soraya claims that Tony literally told her to take a shot at WWE. She said like, now I have a boss who actually cares about me. When she did that opening promo, despite WWE having been nothing but great to Paige while she was injured, paying her, keeping her on contract. As WWE has rebounded and I guess somewhat quelled AEW's uprising, Tony went on a rant about bots promising an independent study that never materialized. He actually brought that up again this week in like a total eye roll tweet, especially given everything on Twitter these days has bots. We get bots responding to the vast majority of tweets that we send. They're literally overrunning the platform. And let's also just not forget about AEW being a challenge brand and and all the stuff that he's discussed, which puts them directly head to head with WWE to the point where he has felt it necessary to take shots and make comments and prove that they're better than them and, and literally criticize the competition. But beyond the hypocrisy aspect of it, like does Tony really think AEW is alone here? Fulham and the Jaguars, these are teams that he owns and runs. They're criticized constantly, even when they do well. Taylor Swift is criticized, despite being, best I can tell, a legitimately great role model for young women. My Dolphins, my favorite NFL team, are criticized for only being one of the top teams in the NFL because they beat bad teams, even after they nearly set a scoring record earlier this year. It's not their fault that they played their toughest opponents on the road and in Germany. Don't even get me started about criticism toward Tua Tungavailoa, the Dolphins quarterback. Marvel Films, they set box office records, yet they get criticized because of a miscasting or because whoever wrote the movie left out some minor plot point from the comic books that has all these fans upset. AEW gets criticized because everything gets criticized. Putting on a good show doesn't mean it's free from criticism. Doesn't mean there's not a bad match. Setting a ticket record, dubious as that claim has now become, doesn't mean the company is free from criticism. WWE is putting forward its best product in at least 15 years, and it gets criticized constantly. Because guess what? WWE makes mistakes, and it deserves criticism. And AEW makes mistakes, more mistakes recently, and it deserves criticism. Am I supposed to ignore like Juice Robinson's anti-Semitic angle because V. Kingo does a 630 senton? Get the fuck out of here. Now, with that said, let's move on to AEW. And I hate that I started this way because I actually thought this was the best week of TV that AEW has given us in a long time. We got the best episode of Collision in months, heavy focus on the Continental Classic with those three matches stealing that show. But there was also a bit of storytelling with the women's division, a strong women's tag team street fight that stood out. It was the first time in a long time where I thought the two hours I gave to Collision was truly paid back to me, like in entertainment. And I believe AEW got a good rating for that show also. That was deserved. Dynamite was also strong. There were a couple hiccups, mostly a fun two-hour watch. So I'm, I came into this episode wanting to be immensely positive about AEW. But guess what? Over the next however many minutes where we break down Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage, I'm going to speak positively about AEW. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to criticize it.
Let's kick it off as we normally do with the big MJF storyline. So on Dynamite, Wardlow in a promo package said it's a battle of good and evil with MJF, and soon the world will see him broken with the payment for his sins unable to be delayed any longer. He promised to bring out the devil and take him to his knees. Wardlow's motivation, it's clear. Even though he already overcame MJF one-on-one, you can always go back to their feud and, and their angst there. What's not clear is why he feels he would deserve a title match. The guy has accomplished absolutely nothing since returning in the way of quality wins. It's also frustrating that Wardlow does like the same thing weekly in the ring and then the same thing weekly backstage. Never gets an in-ring promo, never something unique. They don't switch it up. Doesn't really show character or growth. He's just angry big man who hates little man who used to treat him like shit. It's like the same note over and over. On Dynamite, Samoa Joe opened hour two talking about the devil attacks and MJF not being the only victim. He said there's always footage of the devil attacks in every instance except when MJF appeared to be gingerly laid out nicely on the concrete. MJF retorted that Joe was supposed to be protecting him. He actually did a pretty good impression of Samoa Joe before noting that the devil's goons surrounded the ring but never attacked Joe last time. Then MJF shoved him, but like eight people in black masks attacked with the guys barely touching them as they just like flew outside of the ring. Then the real devil's goons came out of the crowd. The lights turned out, a black light went on and they were gone. And then the devil showed up on the big screen with a message. Where can you go? Who can you trust? Next week, will you accept the challenge for your ROH World Tag Team Championship? Are you a hero, Max? And Joe angrily accepted the challenge. It's so funny to me that they have this devil and these real serious guys attacking MJF and anyone associated with him. And the devil, instead of speaking and using like a voice device or whatever, sends a really long written message asking for an ROH title match. But he writes out ROH World Tag Team Championship to ask for this match. Given all of the alternatives of things that this person could be seeking, they're interested in this. Also, didn't they just challenge to a tag team match two weeks ago, but they chose not to compete and instead attacked MJF? So that match didn't happen. But now they do the same challenge, this time for the titles. And the goons, again, they're all ringside. They have a numbers advantage four on two against MJF and Joe. They don't do shit. They're just standing there to make sure they read the message on the screen. At this point, it can only be like, I think one of three people, if we're talking about the current active roster, Adam Cole, Britt Baker, just as like a slight swerve away from it being Cole, but having the insane uh, intention behind it, or Jungle Boy. With Jack, you have the fact that there's been so much real glass that's been used between the beer bottle, the office window, the car windshield. With Cole, you have the fact that the devil cares about the ROH tag team titles for some unknown reason when no one else gives a shit about them. You have the likelihood that the goons are some combination of Roderick Strong, the kingdom, Kyle O'Reilly, plus Wardlow. And you have the fact that he keeps calling MJF Max and talks about him being a hero. So it's someone who likely has a personal relationship with him. That's why Cole and Britt Baker both work. But again, Cole is supposed to be legit injured. So how do you pay this off soon if it's him? Can they really drag this past world's end into 2024? I guess we're going to have to see. Outside of the AEW roster, 
Dolph Ziggler and Mustafa Ali, they would make the most sense. Ziggler would probably be the only reveal that would pop me at this point. Maybe Brit because it would be unique. Ali would be fun, but it seems like he's doing a world tour and he's not really signed with AEW. And candidly, as much as I truly like Mustafa Ali and we praise him and, and talk about him all the time, I don't know that AEW really has any need for him. And I don't know that he has any need for them. Ali would be much better off than in like TNA. That would be a great place for him. He could really show out main event. AEW, he would just kind of get lost. That's the way I feel. it. So Ziggler would pop me. I found all this, though, going back to what actually happened on TV. I found it okay. I mean, it's just so damn repetitive. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. It didn't break any new ground. It didn't get me any more excited for MJF or Joe or their match or their reveal of the devil. It just moved everything a step, half step forward, maybe. And that's fine. Like not every one of these segments needs to be some epic storyline moment, but it was heavily promoted to end up being a wet fart. And that's being fair. The biggest problem is the crowd is heavily into MJF and Joe and their segments together are great. But then you bring in the devil aspect and it pulls the fans away from the thing that they're actually excited about. So MJF and Joe were shown continuing to argue backstage when MJF found a black ski mask on the ground outside the Mogul Embassy dressing room. He knocked and gripped uh, Prince Nana against the wall with accusations before Swerve Strickland stepped out, got contentious with MJF saying Swerve is not on his level. And since his theme music isn't playing, he's got no star power. Swerve brought up the William Regal email as an example of MJF doing tryouts and Swerve just signing contracts. He also threatened to hang MJF like he did Hangman Page. So MJF shot back, a bunch of personal insults, and he connected some dots that could put Swerve in the devil mask. It's not him. This was fantastic, though. Better than anything else on Dynamite and eons better than the vast majority of the devil-related segments and confrontations that we've gotten. AEW, they keep putting potential challengers in front of MJF, but Swerve and I said this weeks ago, makes the most sense as someone to actually take the title off of him in 2024. AEW really needs to strike while the iron is hot with Swerve, and I want to believe they're going to, but we're just going to have to see it. I love the back and forth, mostly from Swerve. MJF just, as a babyface, he feels so performative and like overly tongue-in-cheek. Chris Vanini talks about this all the time on the show. It's the babyface sarcasm where it's just like, yeah, okay, but why don't you just be genuine for a little bit? Like, why don't you try that out, you know? Nowhere near as good of a promo as a face, MJF, as when he's a heel. If they removed probably two or three overly contrived lines from this, it would have been absolutely perfect. But it was still immensely positive. And again, arguably the best thing on Dynamite. Let's move to the Continental Classic. We've got a ton of matches to discuss from both, both Collision and Dynamite. So on Collision... Andrade Alidolo fought Claudio Castagnoli in a Blue League match. Andrade missed a Meteora with Claudio ducking, grabbing his legs for a swing into a sharpshooter. Andrade came back with an avalanche code red. Claudio then hit a superplex, but Andrade responded with two amigos. After an exchange of boots, Andrade hit the back elbow for a false finish. He tried an avalanche hammerlock DDT, but Claudio dropped him onto an exposed back turnbuckle. Then as the referee fixed it, Claudio hit an elevated low blow with his knee. I don't think I've ever seen that before. 
plus the gotch pile driver for the win. This was one of the, the best cheating heel finishes that I can remember. Claudio looked so freaking smart the way he pulled this off. It protected Andrade in defeat, given his strong run already in the tournament. The match somewhat left a bit to be desired, but the finish actually improved my take on it when generally finishes like are more likely to downgrade in my take on a match. 3.75 stars B+. Later on Collision, Miro cut a promo saying perhaps hot and flexible is poisoning him. He said he doesn't want to fight Andrade because he's her client, but because he's an asshole. He said he's done everything to appease hot and flexible. Instead, he's ready to kill everyone. So if that's the case, is he going to attack Andrade before the end of the tournament or is he going to stick to his word? This was kind of confusing. One of the problems with using Miro as part of this storyline is that it foreshadows Andrade not winning his side of the bracket, given he has a ready-made challenge once it's over. You know, we're going to talk in a little bit about the storytelling inside the Continental Classic. This is actually not really an example of it because Miro has nothing to do with the entire event. On this note, you know, I'm calling her hot and flexible because it's funny that they're doing it on the graphic and and on Dynamite and and the gimmick that they're doing. But on a much more serious note, uh, CJ Perry had a serious infection of her finger, got hospitalized, had surgery all this past week. It seems like she's doing better, but it seemed like it was an immensely dangerous situation. So I'm glad she's doing better. And of course, wish her and Miro the best. On collision, Eddie Kingston fought Daniel Garcia in a Blue League match. This was a must win for either man to remain in contention. Kingston escaped a grapevine ankle lock with a rope break, caught Garcia with an exploder suplex and a back fist for a false finish. Garcia came back with two Saito suplexes, but he ate a nasty half and half, and he basically no-sold it. Then he ate a spinning back fist with Kingston getting the win. Garcia is a match with Brody King away from getting shut out. While Kingston needs some help, he sits three points behind the leaders. Fun match, right result, especially given the storyline they're doing with Garcia and hopefully the storyline they're completing with him. After the tournament, this was 3.5 stars and a B. On collision, we had Brian Danielson against Brody King. Uh, Brian started selling the eye early. He had a patch with a bandage under it. It already had blood on it before the match even began. King dominated Danielson outside with announce table shots and barricade crossbody. The bandage came off with Brian bleeding from his eyebrow soon after. He also kept one of his eyes closed throughout the match, which I thought was really, really good work. Brody came back with a great flying clothesline, knocking Brian off a perch on the top rope. Danielson countered King to the canvas and started hammering him with kicks and elbows, but Brody answered with a Death Valley driver. Brian then caught him with a psycho knee for a one count. Kingston turned Danielson inside out with a lariat, but Brian avoided another, barely hit a psycho knee, coming back with a third to the front and a fourth to the back of his head to pick up the victory with a 3.5 kickout from Brody. Despite that kickout, which after four finishers was unnecessary. This was a banger and the appropriate main event. The contrast of styles was fantastic. Brian continues to thrill with Brody leveling up, sponsored by Shazam, Fury of the Gods during this tournament as well. You could argue King has been among the two or three most impressive wrestlers in this tournament. I don't even have notes here. This was exactly what it needed to be from Bell to Bell. I actually think it would have made sense as a match where they could have gotten away with a sudden pinfall instead of doing the full finisher win. Because again, he took four and still kicked out. Just have Brian catch him instead. But what they gave us worked just fine. 4.25 stars and an A. Either this or Gunther Miz was match of the week. They're completely different, but both exceptional. 
Must-watch matches if you missed either of them. On Dynamite, Swerve Strickland fought Roosh in a Gold League match. This open Dynamite, Roosh had a nice straightjacket pile driver. Then he missed a senton with Swerve hitting a 450 for a one count. I mean, again, here we are with the one counts here. Swerve hit a rolling flatliner and a house call plus Swerve stomp for the win. I did not mean to be short on this one, but the finish was the most important part of it. And a lot of it was just back and forth. Swerve matched John Moxley with 12 points atop the league as expected at this point. Fun match with the right winner because of that. And it kept Swerve's momentum going, which is significant. I'm gonna say 3.75 stars B+. On Dynamite, Mark Briscoe fought Jay Lethal in a Gold League match. Briscoe cut a promo on Rampage about staying motivated despite being eliminated mathematically. Uh, Jeff Jarrett's crew came in talking shit, but Lethal kind of moved them away. The longtime associates agreed to fight for honor. I like the simplicity of the way this was executed. It felt real. Briscoe used a chair for a step-up Topic on Hero, adding a Death Valley driver. Lethal came back with a double counter into a J-Driller, Mark's brother's move. Uh, Briscoe then caught Lethal Injection and hit a Burning Hammer plus the J-Driller for the win. They shook hands after the bell. Not a huge Lethal fan, but this match rocked. The idea of fighting for pride, it worked. Briscoe picking up his only points in his last opportunity was fitting given he was the babyface. Plus, there were some really nice storytelling elements throughout. The elbow drops, the J-Driller, it all worked. 3.5 stars and a B. And on Dynamite, we had John Moxley against Jay White. Mox got a sleeper hold and hit a pile driver early for a two count. This had a bit of violence as one would expect with a Mox match. White dumped him atop the steel steps with Mox selling a knee before grabbing two steel chairs. Jay did. The referee stopped him so White could avoid a DQ. So he misdirected the ref with one and drilled Mox in the knee with another for a 9.5 count break. Mox countered Blade Runner into Paradigm Shift with a delayed cover. Then he hit an RKO that White no-sold into a sleeper suplex and a Uranagi. Mox then completely no-sold a sleeper suplex with a Lariat, hitting another plus a stomp after a third Blade Runner counter. White then escaped Death Rider and hit Blade Runner for the win. Swerve then walked out and White took out Mox's knee with another shot. I forget if he used a chair or not, but he took out his knee again. But my lord, the no-selling down the stretch of this match, it just took me out of something that was otherwise banging. Like the result made a three-way tie with 12 points. So it's gonna be White, Mox, and Swerve in a triple threat, which is what we always expected. Given Mox is now selling the knee, it stands to reason he won't win the classic, even if he does survive the triple threat. Super entertaining main event. Just tough to put a grade on a match because the key stretch, it did not go well for me as a viewer. 3.75 stars B+, plus. I'll probably land there just totally different than what we got from Andrade and Claudio, which I graded basically the same. There was also a brilliant sign in the crowd for this match. Spoiler, Mox is going to bleed. I audibly laughed when I saw that on my screen. One last thing about the Continental Classic. I saw some people criticizing it for not having storylines. That was certainly the case when it started, but it also was the start of a tournament. It is not the case now. Multiple storylines have been developed throughout this event, both involving those who are competing to win and involving those who obviously were trying to, but are not going to be able to contend, you know, to win the Continental Classic. Some of them are more compelling than others, sure, but the nature of doing a round robin creates opportunity to tell stories. And Tony Khan has successfully done that here. So if you're hanging your hat on the fact that it's just wrestling, you're not paying attention. They're doing a real good job telling stories, both when it comes to like the individual brackets and the 
issues that some of these wrestlers are having with one another, the way people are winning matches and what it means going forward, the way people are losing matches, as we've discussed with Garcia multiple times here on the podcast. There is storytelling going on in the Continental Classic. The Continental Classic, I I think, and I really have to go back and review some others, it's the most successful tournament that AEW has done since its inception, at least that I can remember. It's kicking ass. The match quality is great. The storylines coming out of it are great. I mean, it deserves a lot more credit, I feel, than it's getting. But at the same time, Tony, just because I'm putting over your Continental Classic does not mean I can't criticize other parts of your show. So let's move to Collision. Brian Cage squashed a jobber. There wasn't even a post-match in the ring. He later cut a promo backstage supporting Swerve with Prince Nana putting over the entire embassy. Keith Lee walked in as they were ready to leave, saying his patience is running thin and time is running out, referring to wanting to fight Swerve. There was no reason for this match to happen in order to do an unrelated backstage segment. It's also truly high comedy that Lee is now going back after Strickland after all of this time. It screams of a resume padding win for Swerve coming out of a Continental Classic loss. Otherwise, why would you build this now randomly out of nowhere? I mean, you could still do it if he wins the Continental Classic as it is another establishment win before he gets a title shot. But I mean, come on. Like, you're bringing this back. They should have just let it die at this point. On Collision, Adam Copeland cut a tape promo saying he forgot that he was hungry for gold, so he challenged Christian Cage to a no-disqualification match for the TNT title at World's End. This feud is about so much more than a championship. So while I don't have much of a problem with the TNT title being part of this, it seems strange that it was a focus of Copeland's promo as opposed to the fact that Nick Wayne's mom attacked him and he got screwed out of that match. On Dynamite, Tony Schiavone read a prepared statement from Christian saying he took Nick Wayne on vacation and would address Copeland's challenge on collision. I'm not going to go into the details of it because really nothing was said. Concept, solid. Tony's execution of it, not that great. On collision, FTR hit the ring calling out House of Black to confront them face to face. They said that they're jealous of Brody and Julia Hart's recent success, which was odd given, you know, their one faction. Dax Harwood was about to issue a challenge when his mic got cut, the lights went out, and Malachi Black and Buddy Matthews appeared on screen. Buddy clarified they aren't trying to hurt FTR, but prove no one actually has their backs, particularly Cash Wheeler, who doesn't have the same kind of family that Dax does. Matthews was trying to recruit them. Malachi Black said they aren't trying to inflict pain, but show love, pointing out that no one saved FTR from their attack. Then he lit a picture of Dax's family on fire, which led to FTR storming out of the ring to prevent the picture from burning. It's not like anyone was physically in danger like when Hangman ran out of the ring because Swerve was in his home. So that was odd. I'm into the feud for the most part, but this was not executed well. On Rampage, Ruby Soho was frustrated backstage after losing to Riho with Soraya coming up and berating her as a reminder that she needs Soraya by her side. Soho snapped back that Soraya should just go beat Rio herself if she's so confident. And that made a match for Wednesday. It actually made sense. On Collision, Tony Storm said she has no care who challenges for her title at World's End. Mariah May said Tony Khan helped her get an American wrestling license, but doesn't know her first opponent yet. Then she asked Storm to commentate her first match, which Tony denied, saying she could just join one of her seminars or something like that. Tony also said tits like four times. It's now becoming as trite a word for her as bitch was for Jade Cargill, and Tony's using tits even more than Jade used bitch. On Dynamite, Rio fought Soraya. 
Tony was on commentary and Ruby watched from backstage. Soraya hid behind a security guard after taking like three ringside hurricanranas, but somehow being unaffected by them. Storm said tits twice in five seconds. Rio then nearly broke Soraya's neck with a Northern Light suplex just because of their size differential, made it tough for her to like fully rotate. Rio then won with a double stomp and a Meteora. Storm made fun of Rio for being small during the match, then looked at her close up with binoculars after the bell, only to eat a 619. May then ran in with the title and leveled Rio, but Tony was carried out, not really interested in capitalizing, and kind of confused why Mariah did that for her. It was kind of a flat finish because, look, Soraya was just recently the women's champion, and she got beat with pretty much nothing here. But it was obviously the right winner, giving Rio as being hot-shotted to a title match. And there's also infighting between Soraya and Ruby. The post-match was pretty entertaining, and Tony continues to do her character well, even if it's a bit over the top, though that's pretty much the point of the character. She did have a fantastic line at the start of this on commentary. She said Taz is a landlord because he's the human duplex machine. Quite good there. Credit to her for that. On Rampage, Kyle Fletcher and Powerhouse Hobbs destroyed a couple jobbers. Don Callis got a lot of heat saying they are winning tag team matches with record speed. He said they would begin operating by Don Callis family rules, meaning any two of them, the third being Konosuke Takeshka, can compete in any match. Basically, Freebird rules. No one gave a shit, including yours truly. Chris Jericho tried his best on commentary to make it seem important. For Freebird rules to matter, they need the championships. And right now, the titles are held by a couple heels. So it'll be interesting to see if they can actually get the titles to them and what happens after that. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho backstage spoke somberly about Kenny Omega having diverticulitis and being out indefinitely. Jericho said Omega's health supersedes their title match with Ricky Starks and Big Bill, and he would wait for him to get healthy. Then he botched Omega's goodbye message, but it was still sweet that he did it. Obviously, I waited until now to mention this because it comes out of the Kala situation, but it is news that we should talk about just like we did with Perry. Of course, we wish Omega the best. Hope he gets well as soon as possible. Diverticulitis is absolutely no joke. Brock Lesnar suffered from it. You can go online and read up about like some of the shit, pun not intended, uh, that he dealt with there. But you know, for Kenny, someone who's already been through the ringer over the last year in terms of injuries and surgeries and getting healthy, obviously comes at an extremely bad time. It seemed like he was healthy otherwise. Um, you know, we heavily criticized that confrontation segment last week, and it was rough. So moving on here is not the worst move. The question becomes what they do in terms of title challengers and the Callis story. It does make sense maybe for Callis family to win the titles. That gives Omega time to get back healthy, and then you can have Omega and Jericho go after them. That might be what they do. I'm just not really sure there's any clear answers at this juncture. On Rampage, Elio Del Vikingo, uh, Penta El Zero Miedo, and Commander fought Top Flight and Action Andretti. I wonder if they're just a trio now because Andretti had matching gear, so maybe all of them are top flight. I don't know. For a match that was largely ridiculous in its pacing, the Luchadors actually tagged quite often, unlike the other team. This was fast-paced action, move after move, almost like a choreographed dance in certain parts. Penta took a Death Valley driver on the apron for Andretti. There were consecutive near botches on an apron German suplex and a Canadian destroyer. Luckily, both guys were fine. Then Penta hit a perfect apron destroyer afterward. Then it got choreographed to like, an eye-rolling extent with all six men. Chris Jericho told us it was one of the greatest matches he's ever seen. Apparently, Jericho has amnesia and has forgotten a lot of things because this was not among the top 
200 matches I've ever seen, and that's probably even being generous. There were stereo Spanish flies by the luchadors before Commander got caught and spiked with a slam for the win. Justin Roberts, in his ring announce, said, winners of this spectacular match, as if AEW was trying to force feed us the opinion of this being great. The moves and sequences were fun. It was heavily hyped coming into Friday night. So I was really looking forward to watching this. My Lord, was this match overrated. This did nothing for me. The first half, where they actually wrestled the six-man tag, was going pretty well. Then it was just reduced to a spot fest and absolutely nothing more. And on top of that, it got a lackluster finish. 3.5 stars and a B. I'm only giving the grade for context of my opinion. Nothing I would ever consider watching a second time. But was it a fun main event for a Rampage? Sure. I just wish it had been promoted as that rather than, oh my God, one of the greatest AEW matches. You have to tune in. No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't anywhere close. It was not a top 10 match this week in AEW and WWE. It was not a top six or seven match in AEW this week alone. That's where you contextualize this six-man tag. On Collision, the acclaimed were backstage with Daddy Ass pissed off about being attacked weeks ago. They basically disappeared off TV since then. Max Caster said he no longer wants to be friends with MJF because their association got them attacked and MJF didn't care anyway. Then Top Flight stepped in wanting to challenge for the titles after getting two wins in the division. See, this is the type of like simple title match that it makes sense in contrast to what so often happens with the other mid-card titles. Also, it's gonna be a nice win for Acclaim to potentially get rolling again as the champions. On Dynamite, Commander fought Roderick Strong. My feed was glitchy during this match for some reason. I'm pretty sure Commander hit a 450, then a tightrope springboard moonsault outside, but Strong caught him springing inside with a pump knee, and then Commander did a full flip in the air, taking end of heartache to his stomach instead of his back. Strong and Kingdom taped MJF is the devil signs all over the barricade. Then Renee asked them about it, and Strong just repeated the same stuff they've been saying, yelling, saying one name really loud and long. The Strong stuff does not work for me at all. That is one big pile of shit. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy and the Von Erichs fought Jake Hager in 2.0. Orange hit Stun Dog Millionaire with Von Erich rolling up Angelo Parker for the win. A Von Erich, I should say. The heels attacked after, so Danhausen entered and cursed Hager, only for Kevin Von Erich to make the save. The Von Erichs put Iron Claws on 2.0. Cassidy hit Hager with an orange punch, and then Kevin put in the Iron Claw to end it, with Orange giving him his glasses. So look, it was cool for the Von Erichs to get a reaction from the Dallas crowd. I maintain my take from last week that they should have been active on the live Dynamite and should have been involved in something more serious than a segment involving Danhausen. But at least they got a moment. They got a crowd chant. It was slightly better than I expected. On Collision, uh, International Championship was on the line. Orange Cassidy against Brian Keith. This stands in direct contrast to what I was talking about with the trios. Another match with an unsigned talent for no rhyme or reason. Keith had a flip over stunner out of the corner only for Orange to lock his arms in a pinning combination to retain the title. Another match where he does not hit a finisher against the talent he should be looking strong against. Cassidy offered a handshake after the bell. Keith slapped it away and instead tipped his hat, so Orange tipped his glasses. Good showing for Brian Keith. That's about it. On Dynamite, there was a strange interview segment that I'm not even really sure how to break down, but it resulted in Orange deciding to defend the title against Rocky Romero, a friend of his, he was dumbfounded that he got the match because he supposedly wasn't asking for it, even though every bit of verbiage that he used was pretty specific to the international championship. This made more sense than most offenses just because they're friends, but another challenger doing nothing to deserve a match doesn't improve anything. 
On Rampage, Red Velvet fought Anna Jay. Velvet kicked out of a gory bomb and Daddy Magic walked down to the ring for no reason whatsoever. He jumped on the ring apron. That led to Velvet tagging him and then submitting to Queen Slayer with Anna getting the win. The match was nothing. On Collision, Abaddon quickly beat someone named Jasmine Allure. I don't need to tell you what that name sounds like. Julia Hart appeared after the bell and did the same deal, dropping her title, but this time Abaddon attacked instead of touching the title. They brawled. Sky Blue suddenly appeared wearing all black with no more heavy eye makeup. She attacked Abaddon from behind and worked with Julia until, get this, Thunder Rosa ran in from the Spanish commentary table to even the sides. It took the fans like a while to realize it was her because she didn't have any face paint, wasn't wearing her gear, and did not come out to her music. But once they realized, they did chant welcome back. Then Thunder shook hands with Abaddon, which is supposed to be some like creature, but apparently it shakes hands. I saw a bunch of criticism about how Rosa returned. And I think the criticism is largely justified. This is not how you do a return of a former champion after over a year sideline due to injury. It was immensely lackluster. Worse for me than like the lack of entrance or face paint was that she's involved in a low card program that has no relation to anything she's been involved in previously. It's just random. It feels totally thrown together. Plus, why did Sky join Julia now after all of those weeks where she could have linked up with her and stayed buddied up? Instead, she worked with Stat and Willow. So they could have done like a tag team feud, two heels and two faces. That just would have made so much more sense. Maybe we're going to get some explanation, but it really didn't work for me. On collision, Stat and Willow fought Mercedes Martinez and Diamante in a Texas street fight. And yes, you heard that correctly. Two women's matches on one show. Although, yeah, Abaddon was a squash, but still two matches on one show. Truly a rare occurrence. The faces cosplayed as Vincent and Jules from Pulp Fiction. For some reason, I could not figure out. Willow twice threw Diamante into a board that didn't break, so she literally just kicked it in half. Stat hit Saturday Night Fever on a street sign, but got beaten with the briefcase that she brought with her. Inside of that were thumbtacks. Diamante hit a code red into them, but she actually landed on them with her ass as Stat completely avoided the tacks. Diamante then kicked Willow off the apron through a table in a powerbomb held by Martinez, but Stat caught Diamante blind with the discus lariat using a chain for the win. This was fun. You know, say what you will about the AEW women's division, but almost every time they do a street fight, it delivers. It's just something they consistently get right. Nice to have two women's matches on a show, even if the first one was a BS squash. And this stood out despite being surrounded by some other high work rate matches on Saturday night, 3.5 stars and a B. So that really wraps up AEW this week. As you can tell, was pretty damn positive about the show, especially the Continental Classic. Like some of the storylines they're putting together, it feels more cohesive as a product than it has in quite some time. That's hugely positive. They're absolutely going to need to nail the finish of the Continental Classic. They need to land that plane. And whatever they do with the devil, it needs to work because right now fans are feeling frustrated about it and rightfully so because it has been a pretty damn frustrating storyline, at least to this point. So that, folks, wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On the way out, a reminder about our forthcoming schedule. We're going to be back Friday night, special WWE episode. We're going to break down everything that happens on SmackDown, and we're going to give you a quick preview for WWE Day 1 happening on January 1st. We're doing that on Friday because there's not going to be an episode of Raw on Monday night. And because of that, on Tuesday, we're going to give you our 2023 year in review. We got huge praise last year for the 2022 show. We're going to do it again 
2022 was crazy. 2023 might be even crazier by the time we break it all down. On Thursday, we will have your AEW World's End Ultimate Preview along with NXT coverage. And then next Saturday, our final episode of 2023, AEW World's End Instant Analysis. I appreciate all of you listening to today's show. Let me hit you with a couple more reminders first. The Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. So leave the five-star ratings on Apple and Spotify on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we'll read it live right here on the show. Don't forget. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. $5 a month, 50 for the whole year. You can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. Bonus audio, exclusive news post, the next one coming on Friday, and you get to directly interact with us and financially support the show. Once again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Please also remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. But we're also through this weekend tweeting nominees for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, and we want your contributions to the list of nominations. The best way you can do that is by going through our tweets, reviewing them, and then replying with your own nominees. We will do our best to include as many of them as we deem appropriate. Also, please remember that Getting Over has been nominated as Best Wrestling Podcast for the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards, and it is a fan vote. You can find the link on our Twitter feed. Again, at Getting Overcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you support us and vote for us. Winning that award would mean a ton for this show. Thank you all for listening to today's show. With all of that being said, it is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.